Well, thanks. It's, uh, it's great to uh, be introduced to all of you, and thank you, Peter, for your very kind introduction of me. Uh, thanks also to uh, Chapin and Paul for uh, taking care of me, keeping me out of trouble uh, since I got here. It's, a, it's been a very, very warm uh, welcome, and I, I appreciate that. Um, I'm very excited to be here at Ohio State uh, because uh, this is the one of the first opportunities I've had to present in a public academic forum some ideas I've been developing for my current book project. Uh, can everybody hear me okay? Okay. Um, the project, which I began about a year ago, is a study of uh, American involvement in the Arab world in the 1970s. And this is a multidimensional study in which uh, I'm looking at political and diplomatic relations, to be sure, but also at cultural, psychological, uh, and demographic exchanges. Uh, what I'd like to do today is suggest how all of these disparate elements could be combined in a single argument. Uh, I'm arguing that the 1970s are a pivotal decade in the evolution of American relations with the Arab world. Uh, and I'm arguing that if you really want to understand the state of U.S.-Arab relations today, uh, in which on the one hand there seems to be escalating animosity between the United States and uh, much of Arab society, but in which on the other hand Arab Americans and Muslim Americans are increasingly recognized as an integral part of American society. Uh, if you want to understand this odd situation, you really need to look at events of the 1970s. Uh, to make this case, I'm going to start by looking at two ironies uh, of American involvement in the Arab world today, one related to foreign affairs, the other to uh, domestic affairs, and show how each of these ironies is rooted in events that occurred in the 1970s. Uh, I'll then conclude by offering some speculative remarks about how those two ironies might be linked conceptually, what uh, deeper impulses they may reveal. Uh, the first irony concerns efforts to resolve the Arab-Israeli conflict, and especially the Palestinian-Israeli conflict. Uh, there's now pretty widespread agreement over what the basic outlines of a settlement should be, namely a two-state solution with Israel existing by and large within the pre-1967 borders and a Palestinian state located on the West Bank and the Gaza Strip. Yet despite the existence of this widely shared vision, we seem to have no way of moving toward it, no way of getting from here to there. Fareed Zakaria, who writes about foreign affairs for Newsweek magazine, recently said, you know, the problem is not that there's no light at the end of the tunnel. We can see the light. The problem is there's no tunnel. So that's the first irony. Uh, the second irony is that while Arab Americans and Muslim Americans have achieved unprecedented visibility and acceptance within the United States, there's also on the part of American society an unprecedented level of hostility toward the Arab and Muslim worlds. This contradictory pattern was on full display in the immediate aftermath of 9-11 when across the United States, uh, mosques and other Muslim institutions were picketed, threatened, vandalized, and even firebombed. But many of these same institutions, 
were publicly shielded by non-Muslim Americans, especially members of churches and synagogues. And meanwhile, American leaders, for the most part at least, uh, went out of their way to proclaim that Islam is a religion of peace. So the, there was a very uh, pronounced effort to show respect for Islam. Uh, both of these ironies, I am arguing, are rooted in the events of the 1970s. It was in the 1970s, in particular in the half decade spanning the Arab-Israeli War of 1973 and the Camp David Agreement of 1978 that an international consensus emerged over the appropriate resolution of the Arab-Israeli dispute, a consensus that remains substantially unaltered today. Yet it was in precisely this same half decade that the U.S. government got locked into a negotiating strategy that made it extremely unlikely that the settlement favored by this international consensus would ever be implemented. Turning to domestic affairs, it was in the 1970s that Arab Americans moved from the margins of American life to become visible and to some extent influential participants in American mainstream institutions. Yet it was also in the 1970s that popular portrayals of the Arab world took on a decidedly menacing form, featuring Arab villains who threatened the physical and economic uh, security of the United States itself, rather than being some distant threat that Americans encountered when they went to the Middle East. So let's look more closely at the first irony. Um, as you know, in the 1967 war, Israel won a decisive victory over uh, its Arab enemies, seizing the Sinai Peninsula and Gaza Strip from Egypt, the Golan Heights from Syria, uh, and the West Bank from Jordan. And since the war, there had been a total impasse between Israel and the Arab states over how to resolve this situation. Israel insisted that the, if the Arab states were to recover any of their lost territory, they'd first have to recognize Israel and negotiate with it over the extent of any Israeli withdrawal. Uh, the Arab states demanded that Israel withdraw completely and unconditionally from all the land seized in 1967 uh, without any prior recognition or negotiation. This impasse persisted until October 1973, when Egypt and Syria launched a military offensive against Israeli positions in the Sinai Peninsula and Golan Heights. Although Egypt and Syria uh, did much better in the war than anyone expected, both countries uh, suffered a military defeat. Politically, however, the Arab offensive succeeded in that it forced the international community to re-engage the Arab-Israeli conflict and start pushing for some sort of Israeli withdrawal from Arab land. The fact that a number of oil-producing Arab states had, in the midst of the war, imposed an embargo on oil shipments to the West, causing considerable dislocation to the world economy, was also a factor in focusing the world's attention on this issue. Uh, in the months following the 1973 war, a de facto coalition emerged, consisting of the Soviet bloc, several Arab states, some Western European countries, and much of the Third World. All of these countries favored a comprehensive settlement to be achieved in relatively short order 
involving Israel's withdrawal to the pre-1967 lines in exchange for the Arab countries' recognition of Israel. Uh, there were a number of conceivable ways in which such a settlement could be accomplished, but the most frequently mentioned scenario was an international conference in Geneva at which all the parties to the dispute, along with the great powers, would meet to hammer out a timetable for an Israeli withdrawal from you know, back to the pre-1967 lines. Still, there was a good deal of uncertainty regarding what role the Palestinians would play in such a resolution. By now, late 1973, a highly independent, vocal, and occasionally violent Palestinian national movement had emerged under the loose auspices of the PLO. Uh, and there was broad international agreement that some arrangements had to be made to accommodate Palestinian political aspirations. But as of late 1973, there were two main obstacles to including the Palestinians. First, uh, King Hussein of Jordan, which had annexed the West Bank in 1950, claimed to speak for West Bank Palestinians, uh, a stance strongly rejected by the PLO. So even if the Israelis could be induced to withdraw from the West Bank, it was not clear to whom they would turn over the territory. Uh, the second obstacle was the fact that, as of 1973, the PLO was still formally committed to dismantling the state of Israel and to establishing in its place a so-called secular democratic state in which uh, Muslims, Christians, and Jews all had equal political and legal rights. Uh, whatever the theoretical merits of this position or, or this vision, it was obviously a non-starter as far as Israel, the United States, and most of the international community were concerned. Starting in 1974, however, both of these obstacles, Hussein's claim to speak for West Bank Palestinians and the PLO's refusal to recognize Israel, uh, began to diminish, making it possible to envision a role for the Palestinians in an overall settlement of the Arab-Israeli dispute. Uh, in October 1974, the Arab states held a summit meeting in Morocco at which they designated the PLO the sole legitimate representative of the Palestinian people, uh, effectively sidelining King Hussein as the spokesman for the Palestinians. A month later, the PLO was granted observer status at the United Nations, and Yasser Arafat, the chairman of the PLO, was invited to address the General Assembly. So as far as most of the international community was concerned, the question of Palestinian rep representation had been resolved. Meanwhile, a much more gradual transformation was underway in Palestinian attitudes. Starting in 1974, the PLO began inching toward the acceptance of a historic compromise involving the establishment of a Palestinian mini-state in the West Bank and Gaza living side by side with Israel, an idea, ironically, that had originated with the Israeli left in the late 1960s and early 70s. Uh, this evolution in the PLO's position was very slow and uneven and difficult for casual observers to discern, but to most informed observers, it was clear that by the spring of 1977, the mainstream leadership of the PLO was indeed prepared 
for such a compromise. Taking note of this development, the international community began promoting a two-state settlement of the conflict. It was in the mid-1970s that you start seeing these lopsided majorities at the UN, mostly in the General Assembly, but sometimes in the Security Council as well, uh, voting in favor of uh, resolutions calling for a restoration of the pre-1967 lines and for the establishment of a Palestinian state uh, in the West Bank and Gaza. It's really in the, the mid-70s that you start seeing those resolutions. Uh, the General Assembly resolutions passed easily, but the ones in the Security Council were invariably vetoed by the United States, which was committed to a very different course of action. Indeed, during the same half decade in which a two-state settlement was gaining broad international support, Washington was establishing a diplomatic framework that would all but assure that such a settlement never came into being. The principal architect of that diplomatic framework was, of course, Henry Kissinger, who became Secretary of State just prior to the 1973 war. Even before becoming Secretary of State, Kissinger had, in his capacity as Nixon's national security advisor, uh, dominated Middle East policy in that administration. In the early 1970s, Kissinger had essentially endorsed Israel's posture of holding on to the occupied territories until such time as the Arab states recognized Israel and agreed to negotiate on Israeli terms. But the 1973 war and the accompanying oil embargo forced Kissinger to reassess this policy. He now realized that it was not enough to sit back and wait for the Arabs to approach the Israelis hat in hand. Uh, clearly, the Arabs' ability to challenge the status quo and threaten American interests on a global scale was greater than previously assumed. It was necessary, Kissinger concluded, for the United States to intervene diplomatically to prevent another Arab-Israeli war from breaking out. And it's important to underline that Kissinger's motivation is not necessarily to resolve the underlying dispute uh, between Israel and the Arabs, but rather to prevent that dispute from uh, uh, exploding in another uh, major war. Uh, but what form should this diplomacy take? As I mentioned, there was now broad international support for convening a multilateral conference at Geneva for the purpose of reaching a comprehensive settlement. Kissinger strongly opposed this course. At a Geneva-style conference, the United States would face an extremely unpalatable choice. It could support the Israeli position of refusing to withdraw on all fronts simultaneously, but this would pit the United States and Israel against the Soviet Union and the Arab states. Uh, such a stalemate could well result in another Arab-Israeli war with all the strategic and economic dangers that entailed. Alternatively, Washington could join the international consensus and demand that Israel withdraw to the pre-1967 lines. But Kissinger opposed doing this as well for two reasons. First, he shared the Israeli view that the pre-1967 borders were indefensible. He thought Israel should be allowed to keep substantial portions of the territory it had seized. Second, even if Kissinger could convince himself to push for a full Israeli withdrawal, 
he feared that Israel might still refuse to withdraw. Under that scenario, Kissinger later wrote in his memoirs, Israel might risk everything on one throw of the dice. A veiled reference, perhaps, to the possibility that Israel might engage in nuclear blackmail to avoid a full withdrawal. So Kissinger took a completely different course, one that would allow him to reduce the likelihood of another Arab-Israeli war while escaping the dilemmas of multilateral diplomacy. The key for Kissinger was the attitude of Egypt's president, Anwar Sadat. Sadat was extremely eager to end his country's conflict with Israel. Egypt had fought four major wars with Israel and had been defeated every time. Egypt also had severe economic problems, which could not be addressed as long as the country remained on a war footing. Sadat was so desperate to end the conflict that he was willing, if necessary, to conclude a separate peace agreement with Israel, even if this meant being isolated from the rest of the Arab world. Sadat also wanted to take Egypt out of the Soviet orbit and orient it toward the United States instead. And to facilitate this transformation, he was willing to entrust Kissinger with the task of mediating an Egyptian-Israeli agreement. Uh, Kissinger's strategy was to capitalize on Sadat's attitude and draw Egypt into a separate agreement with Israel. With Egypt thus removed from the conflict, the remaining Arab states would find it much more difficult to go to war with Israel, at least on any massive scale. This would dramatically reduce the likelihood of another shock to the international system like the one that occurred in 1973. So Kissinger launched his famous shuttle diplomacy, which lasted from November 1973 until September 1975. The result was an incremental peace process whereby Egypt gradually reduced its state of belligerency against Israel in exchange for Israel's gradual withdrawal from portions of the Sinai Peninsula. The culmination of Kissinger's shuttle diplomacy was the Sinai Agreement of 1975, sometimes referred to as Sinai II because it followed an earlier agreement over the Sinai, uh, in which Egypt regained a slice of territory in the western Sinai in return for its pledge that it would never again use force to resolve its remaining disputes with Israel. For all practical purposes, then, Egypt had been removed from the Arab-Israeli conflict. And meanwhile, in a secret agreement with Israel, Kissinger promised that the United States would not negotiate with the PLO as long as it refused to recognize Israel. While this shuttle diplomacy was underway, Kissinger had worried that other Arab actors, especially Syria and Saudi Arabia, would try to sabotage the process to stop Egypt from removing itself from the conflict. To prevent this, Kissinger publicly portrayed the Egyptian-Israeli peace process as simply the initial stage of what would soon become a much broader exchange of land for peace. Kissinger said to Arab audiences, in effect, give us a chance to reach a limited settlement and it will eventually result in Israeli withdrawals across the board. Still, Kissinger refused to spell out publicly what a final settlement would actually look like. Had he done so, and done so candidly, 
he would have had to acknowledge that his goal was to allow Israel to retain substantial portions of the territory taken in 1967. In particular, he thought Israel should retain all of the Golan Heights and part of the West Bank. So Kissinger's shuttle diplomacy contained two key features that would define American diplomacy on the Arab-Israeli conflict in subsequent decades. Incrementalism and an unwillingness to reveal what a final peace agreement would actually look like. Kissinger's obfuscations regarding the Egyptian-Israeli peace process did succeed in preventing other Arab actors from scuttling the deal. Not only that, the diplomacy he set in motion acquired so much momentum that his immediate successors were unable to stop it. A brief examination of the Carter administration illustrates the point. When Carter became president in early 1977, he was actually determined to abandon Kissinger's incremental approach and push instead for a comprehensive settlement to be achieved by convening an international conference at Geneva. Though not quite ready to endorse a Palestinian state, Carter did support a Palestinian homeland, perhaps uh, in confederation with Jordan. So for a few months in 1977, U.S. policy was remarkably close to the international consensus I outlined earlier. As Carter soon discovered, however, three crucial actors, Egypt, Israel, and Israel's supporters in the United States, had a vital stake in Kissinger's incremental approach and were prepared to take extraordinary measures to prevent its abandonment. The attack on Carter's policy was two-pronged. First, the Israeli government and its American supporters mounted a vigorous campaign against Carter's plan for a Geneva conference. And Carter, taken aback by the pressure, began watering down his own proposal. At this point, Sadat, who had grown impatient with the politicking surrounding the Geneva uh, preparations, made his famous announcement that he would go to Jerusalem to meet directly with Israel's leaders. Sadat's stunning gesture redirected Arab-Israeli peacemaking back to the bilateral track. The result was the Camp David Agreement of 1978, in which Egypt regained uh, the rest of the Sinai in exchange for a formal peace treaty with Israel, in exchange for signing a formal peace treaty with Israel. Uh, Egyptian power was officially removed from the Arab-Israeli equation, and the likelihood of another full-scale Arab-Israeli war was dramatically reduced. Although Camp David is often cited as one of Carter's few unambiguous foreign policy achievements, it can just as easily be described as the triumph of Kissinger's strategy over Carter's initial hopes for a comprehensive settlement. This is what makes the half decade from 1973 to 1978 so remarkable. During the very period in which an international consensus emerged over the appropriate settlement of the Arab-Israeli conflict, a consensus that remains substantially unaltered today, Washington locked itself into a negotiating strategy that made the realization of that vision extremely unlikely. And I say extremely unlikely for two reasons. First, as I said, the Egyptian-Israeli peace process removed Egyptian power from the Arab-Israeli equation. Relieved of military pressure on its western flank, 
Israel was able to consolidate its position uh, in the West Bank through a dramatic expansion of settlement activity. Such facts on the ground have all but ensured that in any final settlement of the conflict, Israel will retain substantial portions of the West Bank. Second, the step-by-step process that yielded Camp David has been regarded by most American officials as a resounding success and has therefore been replicated in almost all subsequent attempts at Arab-Israeli peacemaking. In its efforts to foster dialogue between Israel and the Palestinians, as in the Oslo peace process of the 1990s, or more, more recently, the brief resumption of talks following Yasser Arafat's death, Washington's diplomatic approach has contained the same two features that defined Kissinger's strategy back in the 1970s, incrementalism and an unwillingness to spell out what a final settlement will look at, like. Whether by accident or design, these two features have all but precluded a settlement of the conflict along lines endorsed by most nations of the world. With no credible assurances that the Israeli occupation will ever end, or that if it does, a viable Palestinian state will take its place, Palestinian moderates have few means of restraining these extremists in their midst. Consequently, Israel feels justified in consolidating the occupation, expanding the settlements, and taking other steps that further prejudice the outcome of any future settlement. So that's the first irony from the 1970s, uh, the emergence of an international consensus over the Arab-Israeli conflict coinciding with the emergence of an American diplomatic strategy destined to thwart that consensus. Let me now very briefly turn to uh, American domestic affairs and talk about a second irony from the 1970s, uh, the dramatic rise in Arab-American visibility and inclusion, coupled with the demonization of the Arab world in American media and popular culture. Uh, One of the main reasons um, for the increase in Arab-American visibility was the rapid growth of the size of that community. Uh, This, in turn, largely resulted from immigration reforms of the mid-1960s, which permitted a massive influx of immigrants from third world countries, uh, including the Arab world. Uh, Between 1965 and 1980, the Arab American population more than doubled from a little under 500,000 to over a million. Uh, The dramatic rise in the size of the Arab American population combined with the political ferment sweeping the Arab world, including the Arab diaspora after uh, 1967, encouraged an unprecedented degree of political activism in the United States. During the 1970s, a number of national Arab-American organizations, uh, like the Association of Arab-American University Graduates, National Association of uh, Arab-Americans, either came into being or grew more prominent. These groups often disagreed among themselves, but one basic mission they had in common was to combat anti-Arab stereotypes and to encourage the American public to consider the Arab perspective on Middle Eastern issues. In the early 1970s, Arab-American activism seems to have had little impact on general American attitudes toward the Middle East, probably because activists tended to be intensely critical 
of U.S. Middle East policy and were often militantly opposed to the very existence of Israel. From about 1974 on, however, Arab Americans began getting a more respectful hearing in the mainstream media and from political institutions. In part, this was due to the increased focus on the Arab world following the 1973 war, which reminded Americans that substantial portions of the Arab world remained under Israeli occupation. It's also probably the case that in the wake of the Arab oil embargo, many Americans concluded that it was in their country's self-interest uh, to have better relations with the Arab world. But another reason Arab American groups received more respect was that they themselves were becoming more modern. After 1973, Arab American organizations began shedding their rejectionist baggage and speaking in favor of a two-state solution to the uh, Israel-Palestine conflict. In other words, they joined the emerging international consensus I spoke of earlier. Although this position was embraced by neither the U.S. government nor the mainstream media, it was much more respectable than the rejectionist stance and thus made it easier for Arab Americans to be included in the debate. By the mid-1970s, Arab Americans were enjoying unprecedented visibility. There was a spate of mainstream news stories discovering Arab Americans and remarking on their newfound activism and influence. In 1975, uh, President Ford met with a delegation of Arab, Arab American leaders uh, to solicit their views on the Middle East crisis, uh, the first time the White House had taken official cognizance of this ethnic group. Ironically, though, is right about this time, the mid-1970s, that the portrayal of Arabs in popular culture became markedly more menacing. There was nothing new, of course, about negative portrayals of Arabs, but in earlier decades, American movies and dime novels had generally confined Arab villains to the Middle East itself, depicting them as desert bandits who preyed on Western travelers. Now, however, Arab power was seen as profoundly threatening to Americans who never left home. Uh, the starkest form this threat took was, of course, the specter of outright violence committed on American soil. Uh, long before real-life Arab terrorists began seriously contemplating the mass murder of American civilians, American novelists, filmmakers, and television programmers were writing the scripts for such outrages. Um, uh, in the interest of time, I'll, I'll uh, spare you the details, uh, but we can talk about some of the examples of this uh, uh, in the discussion. Um, and, of course, the, another Arab threat that was frequently invoked in the mainstream media and in uh, entertainment was the threat that wealthy Arabs, now flush with petrodollars, were coming to the United States and buying up American properties. Um, in, in some ways, this anticipated the kind of uh, rhetoric uh, against Japan that you saw in the 1980s. Um, so these are the two main ironies of U.S. involvement in the Arab world in the 1970s, one concerned with foreign affairs, the other with domestic. But what, if anything, do these two ironies have to do with each other? Is there a single overarching framework that can account for both patterns? Now, here's where my remarks become more speculative. Uh, in considering these questions, I've been influenced by the work of Melanie McAllister, uh, an American scholar study who has written about the cultural dimensions of U.S. involvement in the Middle East since 1945. 
and I had you read a representative chapter from her book, Epic Encounters. Although she is indebted to the work of Edward Said, McAllister argues that the stark framework Said offers, Western domination of and hostility toward a Middle Eastern other, doesn't fully capture the reality of U.S.-Middle Eastern relations since 1945. Those relations, she writes, have vacillated between two poles. Distance, othering, and containment define the first. Affiliation, appropriation, and co-optation constitute the second. According to McAllister, affiliation and co-optation prevailed in the early post-war decades, whereas by the 1970s, distancing and containment were the order of the day. I would argue, however, that both poles were clearly evident in the 1970s and that the vacillation between them was unusually pronounced because the challenges the Arab world presented to the United States were so novel and profound. For the first time in the post-war era, Americans had to face the fact that oil, the lifeblood of their precious way of life, was a finite resource under the control of foreign nations, including in the conflict-ridden Middle East. Accompanying this realization were rapid demographic changes as ethnic groups that had previously been marginal, invisible, or altogether absent now demanded inclusion in the American mainstream. At a deep level, one can detect a single common strategy, focused and deliberate in the case of foreign relations, diffuse and unconscious in the case of domestic affairs, whereby Americans sought to manage traumatic change through a partial response to Arab demands, a limited inclusion of Arab figures into the dominant order. Yet precisely because the inclusion was so limited, it could not prevent U.S.-Arab relations overall from becoming increasingly antagonistic. In foreign policy, Kissinger responded to the shocking events of 1973 by drawing Egypt out of the conflict of, with Israel and into a client-state relationship with the United States, a process culminated in Camp David. On one level, this transformation fostered the conceit that the United States was an even-handed power, forging close partnerships with Arabs and Israelis alike. On another level, though, the removal of Egypt from the Arab-Israeli conflict allowed Israel to intensify its occupation elsewhere, embittering America's relations with much of the rest of the Arab world. In domestic affairs, Arab Americans gained considerable visibility and acceptance in the 1970s, but this development had little, if any, appreciable impact on the level of animosity toward the Arab world routinely expressed in American popular culture, a pattern of demonization that, in the decades since, has further embittered U.S.-Arab relations. And so we are left with a single, deeper irony that a general orientation toward the Arab world that was more sophisticated, inclusive, responsive, and accommodating contributed to a sharper polarization of U.S.-Arab relations, setting the stage for the angry impasse we encounter today. Disentangling this irony, teasing out its component parts, uh, is one of the principal tasks of my new project. And since these last remarks, as I said, uh, are meant to be speculative, I greatly appreciate the opportunity to share them with you and to engage in 
fruitful dialogue. Thank you very much. Sure, sure. Yeah, I think, I mean, uh, concern about the Soviet Union, desire to uh, weaken and marginalize the Soviet Union and prevent it from having a meaningful role in uh, any diplomatic process that could be um, uh, uh, undertaken was central to Kissinger's strategy in the, toward the Arab-Israeli conflict. And uh, that was a major consideration. And uh, he, um, one of the, what he was trying to do after 1973 was to set in motion some sort of diplomatic process that would take the pressure off uh, uh, the United States by giving the Arab countries some stake in that diplomatic process, um, but also making sure that the Soviet Union was not a major player in that process. And it, the attitude of Sadat was key to this because Sadat not only uh, was starting to signal his willingness to settle for a, uh, a partial, uh, a separate peace, but also was signaling his desire to uh, further remove himself from the Soviet orbit. I mean, Sadat had started to do that even before the 73 war, but that process accelerated afterwards. And so in a way, it was, it was really, there was a, um, a double benefit that Kissinger saw in cultivating the relationship with Sadat, which was engineering some sort of a separate peace that would make it much more difficult for the remaining Arab states to reignite the uh, the, the conflict, uh, and second, uh, ensuring that the Soviet Union uh, did not uh, play a meaningful role. Now, Carter comes in with a very different idea, and in that very interesting period in 1977, he uh, talks about bringing the Soviet Union back in and, in fact, goes so far as to uh, issue a, uh, a joint uh, declaration with the Soviets about the proper way of uh, uh, conducting a conference in Geneva and resolving the conflict. And this, I mean, certainly it, it uh, alarms 
uh, Israel and its supporters in the United States, but it also alarms a lot of uh, conservatives and uh, cold warriors uh, because it's in the, in the United States because it's seen as uh, abandoning a key tenet of uh, American foreign policy toward the region, which is to keep the Soviets out, not to invite them in. And certainly, I mean, it's, it's hard to know how far Carter could have gone with this new approach uh, in any under any scenario, but uh, the way he brought in the so he talked about bringing in the Soviet Union certainly helped ensure its demise. Do I, oh, sure, I, I can go ahead and. and Uh, okay. Um, I haven't looked closely at the role of China yet. Uh, the impression I get is that China, uh, you know, obviously is uh, in the midst of a very uh, contentious dispute with the Soviet Union and is seeking out ways to undermine the Soviet position in the Middle East also, I mean, along with the United States, but of course in, a, in different ways. And one of the principal ways that China tries to do this is by cultivating a relationship with the Palestinian um, leadership. And so there's this, there's this brief period in the early 1970s before the Soviet Union has fully recognized the centrality of the Palestinian issue and the importance of the PLO, um, after which the Soviets then do have um, ongoing and close relations with the PLO. But prior to that, the, the uh, ch Chinese government is, uh, has attempts to uh, curry favor with the PLO. Uh, and that also, it, because the PLO's relationship with a lot of established Arab governments, some of which are Soviet clients, is very difficult and hostile, that's also seen as a way for the Chinese to undermine Soviet influence. Um, but that's something I haven't looked into in great detail and um, would want to do that before I gave you a fuller answer. As to sources, um, well, certainly I'm using the traditional sources, the, um, which are becoming increasingly available uh, every month. Which, you know, this is a really great time to be looking at the 1970s. Um, there's uh, you know, a lot of stuff at the Nixon Project in Washington, D.C., which uh, will soon be transported uh, to Yorba Linda, California. Um, I'm trying to get as much research done before that happens, because who knows what's going to that it goes to Yorba Linda? Oh, I don't <laughs> um, the Ford Library, I found, is very rich, and it's, it's getting better all the time. I went there in 2003 um, and was very impressed with what I found. Went there again in the summer of 2005, looked in the same files that I had been in two years earlier, and there was all this new material that had been declassified and added to the files. Um, lots of NSC, minutes of NSC meetings, um, uh, lots of uh, uh, diplomatic traffic uh, to and from uh, U.S. embassies in, in uh, Middle Eastern countries. So certainly the, the traditional um, sources I'm looking at. Um, I, another big part of the story that I want to uh, include is the uh, emergence of Arab Americans as political figures, political actors. Um, and there are a number of uh, collections uh, here and there, for example, the papers of Abdin Jabara, who is a prominent Arab-American activist, um, 
are available in the, at the University of Michigan Library. There's this interesting episode in the mid 19 well, the, in the aftermath of um, the Munich uh, terrorist incident, uh, it's 1972. There's sort of a, a, a smaller scale version in the United States of what happened after 9/11, where the U.S. government concerned about uh, infiltration of the United States by Arab terrorist groups, uh, kind of sets in motion this dragnet to um, to find out as much as it can, and sometimes this seeps over into harassment of Arab Americans, and there's a, a, you know, a fair amount of political activism and legal challenges coming out of that. Um, and, and so the, the papers of Abdin Jabbar and other figures who are engaged in those uh, disputes are important um, sources. Uh, I also, I mean, in a way this is kind of ridiculously ambitious, but, and I didn't have time to talk about this at, 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 uh, much in the talk, there's this whole spate of um, entertainment literature and entertainment material um, in which the Arab world is seen as this uh, very threatening place, and in fact, uh, not just a, a threatening place over there, but uh, Arab Amer Arabs are coming to the United States to set off bombs and uh, destroy the American way of life and so forth. A lot of the, these fears um, are uh, re represented uh, and explored in popular literature, and I, I do want to have uh, a look at some of that. And it's it's great because this was such a hot topic in the mid '70s. Everybody was writing books like this. Uh, Spiro Agnew wrote a um, a thriller that was that involved uh, you know the middle the conflict in the Middle East coming to the United States. Um, uh, 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 Bill Fulbright wrote sort of a, a short story that uh, explore the same themes. It, 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 so there's, uh, Ted Koppel wrote one. So the, the, it, it's a really uh, kind of amusing, but I think revealing area to, to look at. Um, other sources, if I can, I'm certainly I wanna look at whatever memoir literature or um, other uh, material uh, is available that can shed light on the Arab world. If there's, if there's any Arab ar archival work to be done, I would certainly like to do it. The impression I get so far is that there's not much that one can do for a period as recent as that, but that's what people were telling me about the 1950s when I did my first book, and it turned out that there was stuff available. So maybe maybe the Arab, the, there will be some Arab archives I can look at. Thanks. Yeah. Um, That's a really good question, and I don't have a very satisfactory answer yet. Um, I have a feeling that there's some way in which this is all connected, and I, I sort of very tentatively uh, express that in my talk about this sort of overarching sense that there's this challenge coming from this region. We as Americans somehow have to respond to it, have to accommodate it, but because there are all these countervailing pressures, the way in which the accommodation takes place uh, in some respects makes the relationship even more antagonistic. 
And that would be sort of the thumbnail version of my argument. Um, now, so far, what I've identified are, I guess, parallel instances of that process. You know, there's a foreign relations version of it. There's a domestic political version of that with the emergence of Arab Americans, and then there's sort of a cultural version of that with the literature. Um, it precisely, you know, whether I'll be able to identify some convincing organic links among all of them, I don't know. I hope so. Um, but I, I thought I would launch on this project looking at all of these things with this very vague hypothesis in mind and hope that it can be strengthened or, or maybe uh, modified into something else that still allows me to bring all of these disparate elements together in a, in a single convincing interpretation. Yeah. Peter, did you want to? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I wonder if you thought about how the state of Israel or the Israel lobby, for lack of a better term, the pro-Israel segment mm-hmm. in American public opinion, might have been an explicit or implicit factor in the uh, emergence of the Arab, Arab American identity or the way in which mm-hmm. that community was portrayed in the popular culture. Um, it's very explicit. I mean, you see, in a couple of different ways, you know, f- throughout the 70s, and I'm sure you would see this in earlier periods as well, to the extent that you do see any Arab-American activism at all, uh, there's this very conscious um, awareness of what Israel supporters in the United States are doing. And in some ways, that's portrayed as, a, a, as something to emulate. Look what they're doing. We can do the same thing. Uh, usually, though, it's, it's a much more kind of hostile uh, perception, which is, you know, we've got to do something to combat these uh, these sinister forces that are um, uh, making it, you know, that have a stranglehold over the, uh, you know, the U.S. media, the U.S. government, and you know, the, you know, the, the familiar uh, argument. Um, so I think, I mean, certainly, it's there's a very clear connection. Uh, between the emergence of Arab Americans as political actors and their perception of the strength of the so-called Israel lobby. Um, now, there's, there's sort of a more general version of that, which is that a lot of these uh, Arab American groups uh, see themselves as explicitly countering anti-Arab portrayals in the news media and on you know entertainment industry. Um, now, sometimes they attribute that negative portrayal to the activities of the pro-Israel lobby. And I think, I mean, there is some truth to that because you do have, um, I mean, certainly there are some very vigorous campaigns that uh, pro-Israel groups engage in in the 1970s um, to demonize the Arab world. And they, there's a kind of rhetoric that APAC and groups like that used in the 1970s that they would they would certainly would not use today. Uh, I mean, for example, in the immediate aftermath of um, Munich, you did have articles and other statements coming out of uh, pro-Israel American groups saying that you know terrorism is a an expression of Arab culture. You know, something that they similar groups would probably not say quite as baldly today. So certainly, Arab Americans 
are reacting to that and trying to counter it. So there's a, a very explicit connection, I think. Will you consider looking inside the Israel lobby or the state of Israel itself for evidence of whether um, sort of a deliberate calculated plot to combat on this level, to engage combatively on this level, or, or will you simply look at the, um, at the output, like the right. Right. I um, I hadn't really thought that I would be able, you know, just logistically in terms of how much time I can spend on this project to include a um, research inside Israel itself. I mean, I don't don't know Hebrew. I, uh, you know, just that seems something that was not realistic. Um, certainly, though, looking at uh, materials from the pro-Israel groups in the United States is something that is worthwhile. And I've done a little bit of that so far in uh, looking at um, figures like Bayard Rustin, a you know, prominent uh, uh, black civil rights leader who uh, uh, was very supportive of Israel and, in fact, and uh, started this group called uh, BASIC, Black Americans to Support Israel Committee, uh, that worked very closely with um, the pro-Israel lobby and other uh, American Jewish groups. Um, and, you know, looking at the papers of figures like um, uh, Abraham Ribicoff, a, a uh, U.S. senator who was, um, I mean, he actually, for most of the 70s, he was a very um, strong supporter of Israel and um, worked closely with the pro-Israel lobby. But interestingly, in the late 70s, he kind of peeled off a bit and took a, a more even-handed position that got him in a lot of trouble. So. Um, there, I mean, there's certainly, um, I don't know if I'll also, uh, you know, to what extent I would be able to look at, say, records of the American Jewish Congress or APAC. I, I, it's not something I've attempted to do, and I'm not, um, but if I can, that certainly does seem to be worthwhile. Yeah, Alex. Uh, you mentioned uh, the destroying community of uh, Arab American activists during the 1970s. Uh, I'm curious, uh, what sort of Well, they have some links with Arab governments, um, and it, it depends on which groups you're talking about. I mean, there are there are groups. For example, this figure Abdin Jabara was part of, um, and in fact was the leader of uh, the uh, Arab Amer the Association of Arab American University Graduates, which in the early 1970s at least was, you know, militantly pro Fatah, and therefore opposed to just about every Arab government uh, in existence. Uh, so it had very, um, and it, it, but it did have contact with Fetah and, and the PLO. And Abdin Jabbar himself went to Jordan and uh, you know, made contact with PLO leaders in, uh, in uh, uh, Palestinian camps and, uh, and so forth. But there are other groups that were uh, more conservative or at least more, more mainstream. For example, the National Association of Arab Americans that in, on some occasions would actually lobby Congress in favor of arms sales to Arab countries like Jordan or Saudi Arabia. And they had, um, I mean, they certainly had cordial relations with Arab governments. They sponsored events in which they invited represent, you know, Arab ambassadors and other diplomats to attend. Um, and there were also some pretty uh, substantial business ties where, especially after 73, when you have this 
uh, all of uh, the petrodollars um, being you know available in Arab countries, oil producers in Arab countries need to invest. Um, there, what they often did was work with Arab American bankers in the United States to uh, to, to put together investment portfolios. Um, so there there were lots of um, financial ties that uh, Arab Americans had to the Arab world as well. Yes. Um, that's a really good question. I get the sense that there isn't much of an attempt on the part of the Nixon administration to move beyond oil, although certainly you see that under Carter. And, you know, he, Carter spends an inordinate amount of his time uh, dealing with this energy crisis and trying to think about ways in which uh, alternatives, well, to Middle Eastern oil in particular, but to fossil fuels in general can be can be found, and of course, you know he has this whole, uh, you know, part of his persona is that he's an expert nuclear physicist because he, you know, served on a nuclear uh, submarine uh, as a young man. But then, you know, Three Mile Island kind of destroys that whole option for him. Um, I haven't looked too closely at this question. Um, I, I don't get. I mean, certainly, if you look at what Nixon and Kissinger are concerned about, they. They do see oil as being as the central uh, economic interest of the United States and its allies in the region. And as far as I can tell, that's their primary focus, and it's ensuring that that resource will be available. Um, I mean, certainly the uh, the the urgency of the of the Arab oil boycott, uh, the embargo in late 73 and early 74 is so great that I think it, 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 you know, and the necessity of bringing that embargo to an end, and then once it's, it's ended, ensuring that it doesn't resume. Um, throughout this whole period that I was talking about, this, this shuttle diplomacy uh, from late 73 to um, the fall of 75, it's, it's always done against the backdrop that this conflict could resume. You know, that the deal with Egypt could fall apart, Egypt could, could resume hostilities. Um, that, in turn, could trigger a resumption of the oil embargo. So I think, uh, I mean, I'm sort of developing this hypothesis as I speak, but I, I think the urgency of dealing with the immediate threat posed by the oil, uh, the oil embargo at, you know, a, as it was unfolding probably crowded out a lot of thinking about alternatives to, um, to fossil fuels. 
I could be wrong, but that you know perhaps that's one way of looking at it. Well, and more so beyond just the question of fossil fuels, just trade, economic ties. Mm. Right. Um, that, okay. I don't get the sense that there was much of a perception that the Arab world had much to offer economically besides oil. Um, I mean, again, it, this is often a, a reflection of what one looks for. I have not, to date, really pursued uh, many of the economic uh, files in these, you know, in the archives. So perhaps one, you know, if one did so, one would find that there's this whole dimension, you know, with the Commerce Department really, really interested in this kind of stuff. But if if the Commerce Department, per se, you know, for example, was, it, that interest does not seem to have filtered up to the level of Kissinger and Nixon. Yes. Okay, that's right. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. No, that that is an important dimension. Although, to, I mean, the again, the centrality of that issue, at least from the standpoint of the U.S. government and even or even Congress, uh, is political. Not. I mean, it's not so much that. I mean, the notion is that we have all of these American corporations that are being pressured not to deal with Israel if they also deal with uh, Arab states. And a lot of these uh, uh, American companies, because they had relatively minor dealings with Israel to begin with, thought that this was a, you know, a, an acceptable trade-off. And, so, and this was challenged at the, at the congressional level. Um, so, but I think, I mean, the motivation for the challenge is, is political, not economic. But there was a growing sense by the early 70s, you know, that the Arab world, since they were renting in all this oil money, it was, it was a worthwhile place to invest mm -hmm. trade, and the question is, who was going to get in there? Okay. The Indians, the Brits. I see, okay. Uh, us, um, the Russians. Mm -hmm. You know, because there was some realism in Okay. Yeah, and I see. I mean, I I see what you're saying, and I I do think you're right about that. I mean, I, and again, in a sense, you could say that this is all a result of the petrodollars. So it, it's ultimately reducible to to the fact that these countries have oil to sell. Um, but but yeah, but then but does, it does turn them into clients and so forth, and so the economic dimension does expand. Um, domestic events inside, well, it, it really depends. I mean, you can sort of go down the list and think of particular cases 
in which domestic um, crises become international disputes. I mean, an obvious case in point would be the Jordan crisis of 1970, um, where you have a you know a challenge to the central government by the Palestinian movement, um, and for a while, the, and this challenge is joined in by uh, the uh, by Syria, which sends uh, tanks over the border into into Jordan, and it the survival of King Hussein seems to be in doubt, and the U.S. government asked the Israelis if they would be willing to intervene to save King Hussein's throne if necessary. And the Israelis say, yes, they you know, are willing to do that. And in, oh, by the way, King Hussein himself asks this. <laughs> That's the interesting thing. Um, it turns out not to be necessary. Hussein is able to thwart the challenge on his own. But the fact that Israel has shown itself to be willing to do that is seen as a very um, big step. And uh, you could argue that the transformation in U.S.-Israeli relations really results from that experience more so than, you know, say the 67 war, as some people argue. Um, so that would be one case. Uh, and, you know, that has all sorts of other ramifications, which is that, you know, you have an Arab government um, requesting support from Israel. It's, I mean, it's not known for a fact that that's what King Hussein did, but it's widely rumored that that's what he did. And that obviously complicates King Hussein's regional position. Um, it, the Palestinian movement has dealt a very um, severe military blow, it has to leave Jordan, relocate to Lebanon, um, and that helps to uh, exacerbate the unraveling of Lebanon a few years later. So there, there are all sorts of ways in which these domestic crises are important. They affect the unfolding of international um, diplomacy, and they also lead to the uh, you know, to other to, to, to domestic problems in other countries uh, nearby. Uh, yeah. How good is the reporting from the Arab world? Yeah. Reporting by whom? By the, uh, by, the by the diplomats? Um, I think it's pretty good. Uh, I, the the journalistic reporting. I mean, I found that in 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 some respects, the not so much the daily dispatches from from Western journalists, but the more um, the the more reflective books that journalists wrote at the time or shortly thereafter are more penetrating and um, seem to me more convincing than uh, what some historians have written 30 years later. So I think, yeah, I mean, there's some, uh, Edward Sheehan was really good, uh, Patrick Seal. There were some journalists working um, in the, uh, the region in the 70s who did some really outstanding work that holds up very well today. Um, as for, um, I mean, the reporting of from the field, it's hard for me to, I mean, the the obvious. I mean, the one big case where there's this huge failure that one can one can think of, which doesn't have to do with the Arab world, but rather with Iran, is the late 70s when you have uh, the diplomatic establishment completely missing the Iranian Revolution. Um, I'm not sure if there's any comparable um, blunder 
in the Arab world that I, I suppose you could say that there is a general failure in the early 70s on the part of uh, the American diplomatic corps to grasp the significance of the Palestinian movement. And there's um, certainly there's an attempt to um, find alternatives to the PLO. I mean, in the, I mean you know, certainly that re reflects American policy, so you can't, don't necessarily blame diplomats in the field for doing that because clearly they're being instructed that the U.S. government cannot have any formal relationship with the PLO. So if there is going to be any um, cultivation of Palestinian leadership, it has to be non-PLO. So consequently, there's this, there does seem to be this inordinate focus on these figures, often these West Bank um, politicians who don't have that much popular support, but who are seen as potential negotiating partners. Um, now, to what extent you can blame that on, you know, a failure of perception on the part of diplomats? To what extent do you just acknowledge that that's what, that was their job and they knew that um, expending a lot of ink on uh, Palestinian, on PLO figures would get them nowhere in Washington? I don't know. But that would be the principal area where there doesn't seem to be as an acute an analysis as you'd like to see. On the um, subject of gender, which is a hot topic in international history these days, just the other day I was teaching many of these students in a class, and you know, there was a rather stale discussion, would it be fair to say, on the importance of gender as mm -hmm. a factor in understanding the world, and of course, McAllister is full of gender. Mm -hmm. So, do you see any um, evidence to validate what McAllister or Shellmart or Anne Heiss has argued? Um, well, not so much the portrayal of Arab Americans, but the portrayal of the Arab world. I mean, I think there is something to that gender argument about the way in which um, you know, the people that are seen as the good guys are uh, masculinized and you know, those who are... It's, I, although, I don't know if it's so much that the, the bad guys are feminized as, uh, as they are portrayed as, as not living up to... Um, Western definitions of manliness. That's not necessarily the same thing. Um, and because I think what you often have is this, maybe this wild over-sexuality or this undifferentiated, uncontrolled violence. You don't necessarily need to equate that with being feminized, but it's certainly, it's, it's not living up to a manly ideal of self-control. Um, and I, I, uh, there, another chapter from McAllister that I, I could have assigned but didn't because I, you know, for lack of space, is the one on um, the uh, American perception of Israel in the 1970s, which I think is really, in many ways, quite um, uh, quite astute. And there is this notion of, and it's of course all against the backdrop of the Vietnam War, which is a, you know, increasingly in the United States seen as an instance of. Uh, uncontrolled violence, uh, and you know, for a cause that you know whose moral basis is no longer clear. Israel, on the other hand, is seen as being both effective and moral in its application of power. You know, it's going after 
terrorists, and it's doing so, at least in the sort of in the uh, the popular perception, it's doing it in a, a very um, a surgical and uh, careful way, minimizing civilian casualties and all that sort of thing. And the the climax of that, of course, is the rescue uh, raid in Entebbe in 1976, which is seen as the antithesis of everything uh, the Vietnam War was. Um, and, and and McAllister ties it to uh, popular novels and movies that come out at this time in which you have the, a very common trope in this period is you have Americans facing a terrorist threat who are schooled by Israelis in how to do it right. Um, and so the, and often there's a very appealing Israeli figure, uh, usually a you know, retired military or intelligence um, agent, who comes to the United States and is uh, in liaises with um, the American authorities and really shows how to do it right. And that figure is often the, um, the, the epitome of a manly self-restraint someone who actually hates violence, who you know, regrets having to t take part in violence himself, but realizes its necessity in order to prevent, to protect the, the larger community. Um, so I, I do think there is something, something to that. Um, I don't yet have much to add to it. I mean, I, other than, you know, I, I don't really, I haven't, you know, done the sort of independent ana analysis on my own uh, of this material. But I do think that uh, McAllister is a useful starting point. It, it sounds like the, um, the way you interpret McAllister, though, is would be to say that gender is its factor, but it's not necessarily a clean cut factor. In other words, these portrayals of the Israeli retired military officers are based in part on their masculine qualities, but also in part on their orderliness and their effectiveness. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I guess you could say that there are contested visions of manliness, and there are some some versions of manliness that stress self-control, and others that uh, stress uh, initiative and willingness to you know to get into fights. So I, I certainly, I mean, so you you can not reduce it to gender, but put it in some sort of a gender analysis major question might remain to what extent um, the gender typing is a result of decisions that are made for other reasons in terms of policy. Right, right. Or to what extent they actually drive those decisions and thus become part of the causation. Right. I mean, my sort of operating hypothesis is that it's the former, that it's really sort of the idiom in which um, certain decisions are conveyed to a larger audience. But um, you can always challenge that and say, well, I mean, maybe there is this sort of deeper cultural predisposition that helps explain the, why the United States has inclined towards certain countries as opposed to others. and. I mean, the case of Israel is, is an interesting one because you can certainly make the case, and people have you know, done it for years, that 
know, America's real interests you know, dictate something other than a very close uh, relationship with Israel. You know, and this goes all the way back to the debates over the formation of Israel uh, with you know, the State Department and Defense Department officials arguing against it and saying that it's just, you know, it's all, uh, America's strategic interests and, uh, really call for a closer relationship with the Arab world, and yet here's the, the president for domestic reasons um, or, you know, maybe for some, you know, through some misguided application of what he thinks is moral reasoning, um, doing, doing the wrong thing from a strategic standpoint. Um, so I think, I mean, I don't think you can understand the U.S. relationship with Israel without bringing in these uh, less tangible factors. You know, the culture obviously is, is a big part of that. And there is some sense that goes back, you know, to the uh, really, you know, to well before the founding of Israel. There is the sense in which Jews are part of us and Arabs are not. Is there, what does gender have to do with that? Maybe there's this deeper cultural in inclination to include Jews, exclude Arabs, and maybe gender or the sort of gendered language we were talking about is an idiom in which that separate cultural predisposition is conveyed. But maybe the, the cultural predisposition can't really be separated from the gender. Yeah. Well, they were uh, actually. I mean, until the early '70s, um, most Arab Americans were Christian um, because most of them, uh, you know, came from the Syria Lebanon area, and there was a. Uh, there are both political and economic reasons uh, for a much larger percentage of immigrants from that portion of the world being Christian. I mean the. They were, you know, less felt less secure in, you know, within the Ottoman Empire, and also Christians tended to be a little bit more affluent and have the means to come to the United States. Um, now that starts to change following the the um, immigration reforms of the mid '60s, and then also uh, another big factor is the Six Day War, which creates tens of thousands of uh, Palestinian refugees, some of whom end up in 
um, the United States, and they tend to be predominantly Muslim. So the, so I mean, now Arab Americans are mostly Muslim. I'm not sure what the breakdown is, but uh, it, in the 1970s, it, it was in the 1970s that that balance shifted. Now, what effect that has um, on it's kind, it's 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 a little counterintuitive in the sense that the earlier generation of Arab Americans who are predominantly Christian are um, they're more easily assimilated. They're less. They tend to be less politically active. Um, so they don't make that. You know, they don't make much uh, in the way of waves. The later generation is they tend to be um, more predominantly Muslim, less well-educated, um, but also more politicized. So in, in a way, they're, they're factors that you don't necessarily associate with each other. Um, so you do have this increase in uh, political activism, you know, resulting partly just from the growing numbers of them, but also because of the, the unfolding of of international events, it's inclining, um, what's well, inclining Americans in general to be critical, more critical of their government, um, and Arab Americans in particular to, um, I mean, it would be inconceivable for the earlier generation of Arab Americans, say in the 1950s, to take as vigorous a stand against their own government as Arab Americans in the 1970s did. Um, but, I mean, that has a lot to do just with general changes in American political culture. Um, it's, hard to, I mean, it's hard to isolate the religious factor as a, um, uh, and make much of it. I mean, I think, I think probably the other factors I mentioned uh, have to do with the, uh, the events of the Arab world itself, changes in general American political culture, to some extent the class base of the um, uh, of the immigrants, that's probably more indicative of the, uh, the change in their behavior. I mean, there's this whole other subject, though, which you mentioned, which is the um, role of uh, Christian Zionists. And that really does become very prominent in the 1970s. Uh, in 1970, Hal Lindsey publishes uh, his book, uh, The Late Great Planet Earth, which uh, you know, very explicitly uses biblical prophecy to, uh, or rather uses events in the Middle East to vindicate biblical prophecy, saying you know, the, you know, after 67, the Jews now have Jerusalem. That's a key precondition for the unfolding of revelations. So it's, it's coming. And you know, obviously the evangelical, uh, evangelicals become a you know, major political force in the 1970s. Uh, first, ironically, in coming out for Jimmy Carter in 1976, but then in a much bigger way uh, for Reagan in 1980. And, um, I mean, I, McAllister talks about this in her book, too. I, I think this construction of Israel as a necessary um, ingredient in the unfolding of biblical prophecy is something that becomes very uh, widely disseminated uh, in the United States, you know, and just in terms of book sales. And, uh, there's a movie version of The Late Great Planet Earth, too, that uh, was quite popular. Um, so, yeah, I think uh, there's there's a, a story to be told there as well. 
Actually, I have one more, if sure. you don't mind, and then yeah. we'll break for the perception. What about the domestic political uh, dynamics at play? Did, it, did the Arab American community, as it grew in the 70s, tend to concentrate in either certain congressional districts or certain states, and thus gain more mm -hmm. leverage in national politics uh, than a more dispersed community might have had or than it had in earlier generations? Well, they're certainly concentrated. Whether that makes much difference is harder to say because, I mean, in this period at least, their political influence is very, very minimal. I mean, I, I think to the extent that you can see them as having influence, it's it's a bit more in the cultural and uh, media realm, um, you know, where you start having more sympathetic news articles and uh, and you know more certain. Th certain kinds of ethnic slurs become harder to get away with in the late 70s than they had been in the early 70s, that sort of thing. Uh, as, for, as for actual political influence, I, I don't think there is a great deal. They are certainly concentrated, though, I mean, in uh, you know, places like um, Dearborn, Michigan, and Detroit, uh, Southern California, um, New York, although they're... Uh, <laughs> their ability to uh, have any impact on New York politics is really minimal. Um, so I, I, don't, I don't really have a, uh, a good answer to that question yet. Um, my sense is that they're, they're, they're not yet at the point where they're having much political influence at all, at least in, something in, in a way that can be measured electorally, which is a little different today. I mean, if you look at Michigan politics, for example, um, the senators from Michigan are not really all that pro-Israel. I mean, they're actually, they position themselves as being very even-handed in a way that uh, Congress people from, in a way that would really be politically impossible for people from any other part of the country. Um, but, I mean, even that was not something, was not possible in the 1970s. Well, thank you very much. Let's, uh, thank you.